This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Vanessa. Firstly, everyone here at ParCast would like to thank you for your loyalty and support. Due to the unfortunate spread of COVID-19, we've decided to temporarily halt recording this week. We hate to interrupt your listening experience, but feel that it's a necessary precaution to ensure the safety of our hosts and staff. But I have good news. While Serial Killers is off, I do have an incredible two-part episode for you to check out from another podcast series I host called Female Criminals. Juana Barraza was a former Lucha Libre wrestler in Mexico City, but between 1998 and 2006, she had moved on to murder, killing and robbing numerous elderly women. By the time she was caught, it's believed that Barraza claimed the lives of close to 48 victims. You can examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of other female felons by following the podcast series Female Criminals on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, rape, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the classic Brothers Grimm story, Little Red Riding Hood, our hero is on her way to grandmother's house to bring her a basket of food, cake, and a bottle of wine because she's under the weather. 
As we know, Little Red Riding Hood is in for a surprise when she gets to her grandmother's house. Because instead of a sweet little old lady, she finds a wolf dressed in her grandmother's clothing. A wolf who has devoured her adoring grandmother. Of course, this story is a fairy tale. Wolves don't eat grandmothers. But the idea of something or someone who preys on a defenseless lady still strikes to the core. Who would do that? Juana Barraza was a mother of four, an amateur wrestler and one of Mexico's worst serial killers in recent history. In the nine years between 1999 and 2008, she killed as many as 49 people all of them elderly women who lived alone. Many of them were grandmothers. She gained their trust, entered their homes, and beat or strangled them to death. Then she robbed them. For a long time, Mexican police didn't realize any of the murders were connected to a single serial killer. And by the time they did, Barraza had earned herself the nickname Mata Viejitas, the little old lady killer. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. You're listening to Female Criminals. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the life of Juana Barraza, known as La Mata Viejitas, the little old lady killer. Before we get started, we'd like to ask you a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Juana Barraza strangled and killed at least 11 women in Mexico City before she was caught. And she's suspected in the murders of over 30 more women between 1998 and 2006 that are still unsolved. She preyed on trusting older women in poor neighborhoods and offered to help them by pretending to be a nurse or housekeeper or government employee. Why only elderly women? we can look for clues in her own childhood. Juana Dianara Barraza Samperio was born on December 27, 1957, in a poor village in the Hidalgo region of Mexico. Her family life was nothing short of awful. Her father, Trinidad Barraza Avila, was, by some reports, a cattle rancher and a member of the judicial police but others say he was really only known for raising goats and procreating. In one interview, he said he fathered 32 children. He never married Juana's mother, Justa Samperio, a teenage prostitute who was said to have been 13 when she met Trinidad in a nightclub. They had two daughters, Juana and Angela. Vanessa's going to take over the psychology here. She's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. In looking at Juana Barraza's early years, we'll see the beginnings of a pattern of instability and abuse that continued throughout her childhood. 
One psychologist, Dr. Feggy Ostrowski at UNAM in Mexico, analyzed Juana Barraza specifically. It was part of a study of more than 370 violent inmates at state and federal prisons to find out if violent criminals had violent family lives or if they had witnessed rape or violent behavior as children. That description definitely applies to Juana Barraza. When Juana was five, her young mother left one daughter, Angela, behind with her dad and took Juana to live with her own mother and stepfather, a man named Refugio Samperio. Juana's mother then began dating Samperio, who, to be clear, was her own mother's boyfriend. Juana was forced to take care of the housework and stay inside the house much of the time. That meant she couldn't go to school, couldn't learn to read or write, and she was abused. Her mother hit her and yelled at her. This was happening at a time when her brain was still developing. It's what Dr. Ostrowski calls the second critical stage of development, which happens between six and nine years old. This is normally the time when kids learn to read, but in cases of those who are later prone to violence, the area of the brain called the angular gyrus is not as developed as in normal children of that age. We know Juana didn't learn to read, and she wasn't exposed to much outside her home situation. And her home life was deteriorating. Juana's mother was a severe alcoholic, willing to do almost anything to get her next fix. That included trading away her own daughter to an older man named Jose Lujo in exchange for three beers. Yes, you heard that right. Three beers in exchange for Juana, who was just 13 years old. Jose Lujo raped Juana, who got pregnant at 13 but then lost the pregnancy. Lujo continued to abuse and rape her for four more years, sometimes tying her to a bed frame. That stayed with her. Juana never forgave or made peace with her mother for neglecting her and foisting her on the man who repeatedly raped her. It shaped the way she'd feel about older female figures who are normally seen as protectors. In 1973, when Juana was 16 years old, Jose Lujo raped and impregnated her again. This time Juana had a son, Jose Enrique Lujo Barraza. But she had no money and no job. Her mother was an unreliable alcoholic. Her father was miles away, and she hadn't seen him for a decade. The closest thing she had to a stable influence in her life was her stepfather. Remember, this is the man who originally dated Juana's grandmother before he started sleeping with Juana's mother. Juana had nowhere to go, so she stayed with her abuser, Jose. It's not uncommon in abuse situations for the abuse victim to stay in the relationship. Emotional abuse destroys a person's confidence and self-esteem. People who are abused often feel ashamed. In other words, abuse victims sometimes irrationally blame themselves for the actions of their abusers. Right. Abusers often take steps to isolate their victims, which makes them even more dependent on the abuser. According to lawyer and therapist Darlene Lancer, victims often minimize the abuse and violence as a form of denial. They maintain an unrealistic hope that the abuser's behavior will change, 
In Juana's case, her abuser's behavior never changed, but she was only a teenager and she had nowhere else to turn. There isn't much information on Juana's life between the ages of 16 and 23, but we know her mother died from cirrhosis of the liver due to her alcoholism around 1980. Around this time, Juana left José Lujo and moved to Mexico City with her son, José Enrique. She still didn't have the ability to read or write, and she had no formal training for any sort of job. That made it tough to find work. Juana took whatever jobs she could find, selling food or clothing in street markets, or finding manual labor jobs cleaning houses or doing laundry. Eventually, Juana married Miguel Angel Barrios Garcia, who was reportedly an alcoholic like her mother, and who beat her when he got drunk. Victims of abuse sometimes choose new partners who abuse them after leaving previously abusive relationships. According to psychotherapist Michael J. Formica, the abuse Juana suffered likely damaged her self-esteem and made her feel unlovable. She stayed married to Miguel for four years, and they had a daughter, Erica Arandi Barrios Barraza. Several years later, when Juana was 30 years old, her stepfather Refugio Semperio died. She believed him to be the only dependable person in her life, and now he was gone. This could very well have increased her feelings of isolation. She was now raising two children in a big city without any supportive family members. In 1984, she moved in with a man named Felix Juarez Ramirez. They had two more children, Emma Yvonne and Jose Marvin. Ramirez was a driver, but didn't make enough to support four children. Juana really needed to find work, too. She was illiterate and only able to do manual labor, so she began selling snacks at wrestling matches for Mexico's famous Lucha Libre League. Lucha Libre wrestlers wear colorful bodysuit costumes and masks. They go into the ring in character. Spectators take sides during the match based on the persona of the wrestler's character and the wrestling style. Lucha Libre is huge, second only to soccer in Mexico. It means free fight, which really describes it because there aren't a lot of rules. There's no cap on the amount of violence and pain. Around 1990, Juana was still working concessions, selling popcorn in the stands, when she was spotted by a man who was looking for new talent. He persuaded her to give wrestling a try. She found that she could earn between 200 and 500 pesos per fight, and that was a much better wage than she made selling concessions. She just needed a persona. Juana Barraza became known as La Dama del Silencio, or The Silent Lady, a name she chose because of her own taciturn personality. She was infamous for the powerful way in which she subdued her opponents, using her stature and moves to shut them down. For someone with her past, being able to overpower an opponent may have given Juana a feeling of control that she never had in the years when she was abused by her mother and the men in her life. Even though the fighting the Lucha Libre wrestlers do in the ring is choreographed, it's pretty intense. They have flying moves and headlocks, and injuries do occur. 
The choreography and potential to inflict pain would give her even more control over the situation. She knew the outcome ahead of time and whether or not she would be the victor. The fights are battles between good and evil characters. They always pit a good character, which is called a technico, or face, against a villain, called a ruda, or heel. Juana Barraza was a ruda. She told reporters she was a ruda in her heart, a villain. She had to identify with some part of her character to play the part. She had a lot of people in her past to draw on when she thought about playing the villain. Jens Kielgaard Christensen, a professor in Denmark, says that if we peek too far inside a villain's mind, we may get sucked in and begin to identify with that person. She didn't look all that evil. The silent lady's costume was a pink and gold tight-fitting one-piece outfit. Match that with gold knee-high boots and a large gold butterfly on the belt buckle, and you're getting the idea. Then she wore an even larger version of the butterfly as a mask, with cutouts in the wings for her eyes. The power she had in the ring could have carried over into her life outside the sport. Violent sports can rev up aggressive tendencies, according to psychologist Nigel Barber. The resulting hostility is more likely to be extreme. Sports can be a great outlet for aggression. And of course, playing an aggressive sport doesn't necessarily make a person prone to violence outside the sport. Juana loved being a luchadora. She was friends with many of the fighters and spent a lot of time at the arena. When she wasn't fighting, she caught matches as a spectator, often with her children. But the wrestling matches and physical labor were taking their toll on her back. She frequented the Mercado de los Brujos, the witch market, to buy ointment for her back and have her fortune read. She carried a mesh bag with a piece of cinnamon in it as a good luck charm, as well as a horseshoe and a metal plate engraved with her wrestling name. You know, people think lucky charms are just magical thinking, but there may be something to them. One German psychologist, Luzanne Damisch, tested this out. She made up a series of challenges for two groups, one with good luck charms and one without. The ones who thought they had luck on their side were more confident going into the tests and did better. Basically, it was a case of mind over matter. Right. The group with the charms set higher goals and were more persistent, and they did better. So there's something to her carrying around those talismans. Well, unfortunately, her luck was running out in her marriage. By most reports, her husband was a bus driver, but some said his job was just a cover for his real profession, as a hitman for crime cartels. There are conflicting reports about how their marriage ended in 1994. Some people say they split up, but according to the Spanish-language blog Escrita con Sangre, or Written in Blood, he died as a result of his involvement in organized crime. In either case, after 10 years with Felix Juarez Ramirez, she was back on her own. In 1994, she was 41 with four children. Her oldest son, Jose Enrique, was 21. Her daughter, Erica, was around 12 years old, and her two youngest were under age 10. She had a lot of pressure on her to support them. She did anything she could to make money, selling socks, candies, and food. 
She was a produce harvester and worked in a chocolate factory, and she was still wrestling as her main source of income. She had no support from the fathers of her children, and wrestling was hard on her body. She was getting more desperate. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to the story. Juana Barraza has never outright explained what triggered the first murder, but many killers escalate to murder from smaller crimes. That's what happened here. By most accounts, Juana's criminal activity began with petty robberies because she was trying to make ends meet to support her kids. She saw herself as a good mother and made sure she took care of them. There's a rumor that two of her children were robbed in their neighborhood by someone in a nurse outfit. And in 1995, Juana herself began to steal. She broke into parked cars, stole small items from shops, and robbed people using a toy gun. Crimes of convenience, taking advantage of whatever situation she could find. She preyed on easy targets, older women, sometimes pickpocketing them on the streets where she sold snacks. She partnered up with a friend, Araceli Tapia Martinez, and the two of them dressed as nurses to gain the trust of older people living on their own so they could rob them. If the story about Juana's children being robbed by someone dressed as a nurse was true, it could have triggered the costume idea. Or perhaps there's a connection between her mother being such a poor caregiver and the fact that she incorporated a caregiver into her crimes. These two partners in crime weren't together for long. Juana got comfortable with robbing the elderly by herself and decided to cut her friend out. She'd go on her own and befriend older women, then rob their homes after offering to come in and help with small chores. It was all about gaining their trust. The psychological term for it is relational aggression. It's essentially bullying and manipulating your peers in order to dominate them, like a teenager who seeks out a weaker classmate to ridicule and sometimes hurt physically. So Juana looked for weaker women, older women, who might not fight back. According to therapist Joni F. Johnston, it's a way of gaining control and status. And for Juana, it was a way to get in the door so she could rob these women. But Juana's former partner in crime, Araceli Tapia Martinez, created new trouble for Juana. Araceli was dating a corrupt federal police officer, Moises Flores Dominguez. In 1996, Moises arrested her and started to extort money from Juana in exchange for keeping her out of jail. Things continued to go downhill for Juana. In 1997, her oldest son, Jose, was killed in the street in either a gang shooting or mugging gone wrong, according to conflicting sources. He was 24 years old. 
Losing a child would add to her feeling that the world was against her. There was no justice. After experiencing the violence and neglect as a child, Juana Barraza likely already felt vulnerable to forces beyond her control. Jose's violent death may have contributed to her feelings of bitterness and powerlessness. In 2000, Juana was able to make some money cleaning houses in between her wrestling matches. That gave her a little more income, but it also provided access to many people's homes, including some elderly women. They were easy pickings, so she continued to steal. She tried to make a little more money organizing wrestling matches at local events and in nearby cities, but she wasn't successful. Juana's oldest daughter moved out, but she was still raising two young children. The pressure of having children to raise would have made her more desperate to get money any way she could. It also bears mentioning that wrestling is not just hard on the body, it can be incredibly damaging to the brain. Just like football players, wrestlers are at risk of concussions and degenerative brain disease. After undergoing brain autopsies, the autopsies of some wrestlers have been diagnosed post-mortem as suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. CTE can cause changes in personality, impulse control issues, increased aggression, and eventually dementia. It's caused by blows to the head, and a recent study led by Dr. Lee Goldstein has shown that brains can begin to develop signs of degenerative brain damage mere days after an athlete has received a blow to the head. Interestingly, the study also showed that the head injuries don't even have to rise to the level of a concussion. Minor head impacts can also result in serious and potentially progressive brain damage. CTE has been found in the brains of other athletes who have committed murder. On June 25, 2007, a top WWE wrestler named Chris Benoit strangled his wife Nancy and smothered his son before killing himself. The Sports Legacy Institute autopsied Benoit's brain and determined that the wrestler suffered from CTE. Since CTE can only be diagnosed post-mortem, Juana Barraza can't currently be diagnosed with the disease, but the possibility remains that the repeated hits could have impacted her brain function. Now 43 years old, Juana's wrestling career was about done. Years of wrestling had caused long-lasting injuries to her body and potentially her brain but she still desperately needed money to raise her kids. The men in her life had raped her, beaten her, and left her. She still carried deep resentment and anger toward her mother for selling her off to the very first man who raped her. Her illiteracy prevented her from gaining meaningful employment. All of this added up to a perfect storm of circumstances. Abuse takes a tremendous toll on all victims, both emotionally and physically. And of course, the vast majority of abuse victims don't go on to harm other people. But Juana Barraza was all too willing to victimize others. There are conflicting theories about when Juana Barraza killed her first victim, with some accounts putting the first death at around 1998, when the first murders of elderly women occurred, and others closer to 2002. 
two to three elderly women per year were found dead starting in 1998, all with a similar MO. They were strangled with something like a pair of tights or an electrical cable. Weapons of convenience, things a killer could find at a victim's house. Exactly. Police found no outside weapons left at the crime scenes that they could analyze. They were coming up dry on viable leads. All they had was an increasing number of elderly victims. Information about the murders and victims is inconsistent and varies widely depending on the source. Here's what we know with more certainty. Based on forensics and witness accounts, police believe that Juana Barraza killed her first victim on November 25, 2002. That woman was Maria de la Luz Gonzalez Anaya, a 64-year-old woman who lived alone. Gonzalez Anaya let Juana into her home. Authorities believe that something then triggered Juana's anger, an insult, an argument, and in that moment she began to relive the awful relationship she had with her mother. According to the FBI, women are more likely to kill or attempt to murder members of their own families. Dr. Ostrowski believes the focus of Juana's anger was her mother, not other members of her family. But Juana couldn't take her anger out on her mother, since her mother was already dead. But this could explain why she chose a certain victim type, someone maternal and weak, someone she could overpower. It could explain the anger she felt when she was in the presence of an older woman, especially if she decided to view something the woman said as an insult. In that moment, Juana's plan for robbery turned to murder. She beat Gonzalez Anaya, then strangled her. She left the older woman's body on a chair, fully clothed, beaten, and bruised. Anaya was found later by her son. In a translated quote, Juana explained how she felt in the presence of her elderly victims. Quote, When I saw them, I felt much anger, and more when they acted uppity or believed that because of their money they could humiliate me. End quote. And with her murder of Gonzalez Anaya, Juana kicked off what would become the biggest hunt for a serial killer in recent Mexican history. It was 2002, and Juana Barraza's crimes had escalated to murder. Police were able to get a fingerprint from the home of Gonzalez Anaya, but without a match to any known criminals in their database, they had no leads. Juana had never been arrested, so her prints weren't on file. And the body count was growing. By differing counts, there had been between 9 and 12 murders of elderly women by the end of 2002. And in the years after that, the number of murders of elderly women in Mexico City began to increase. The cases went unsolved. Police didn't immediately see the murders as the work of a serial killer, partly because they didn't have a lot of information on Mexican serial killers to use for reference. The one everyone looks to is Gregorio Cardenas. His case received so much media attention that he became his own kind of celebrity. That's true. In 1942, Cardenas committed a series of murders and became known as El Goyo, or the Tacuba Strangler. He killed four women over the course of a few weeks. Three of the women were 16-year-old prostitutes who he solicited. The fourth was a 19-year-old fellow student. 
He killed them at his home and buried their bodies in his garden. This is something we see sometimes in serial killers, a desire to keep their victims close by, almost like keeping a trophy in a place where they know it's safe. It belongs to them. No one else knows about it or has access to it. Juana Barraza was no different. Police later reported that she sometimes stole small items from her victims, things of little value, like a piece of costume jewelry. But robbery was only part of her motive for the crimes, and her murders were crimes of opportunity when she thought she could get away with it. Juana Barraza falls into the category of serial killers sometimes called disorganized offenders, which means that their crimes are not planned in advance. According to criminologist Scott A. Bonn, they also more often come from unstable families and have experienced abuse. He says disorganized killers assault their victims with sudden force and often leave their victims' bodies at the scene of the murder. That was what police were finding at the homes of elderly women who'd been killed. Unlike so-called organized offenders, who are harder to catch because they go to great lengths to plan and hide their crimes, disorganized offenders like Juana Barraza are more likely to leave behind fingerprints or other evidence. But unless police have prints on file to compare them to, the killer can be hard to catch. Which might have been why the little old lady killer case took police a long time to crack. Although the body count was rising, they couldn't even be sure the murders were the work of a single killer. They weren't able to collect fingerprints or other evidence at many of the crime scenes. It also speaks to something specific about the criminal justice system in Mexico City. Generally, there weren't a lot of specialists looking at criminal patterns and studying the commonalities in killers. In the United States, the FBI's special behavioral analysis units are crucial for deconstructing crimes and analyzing the psychology of the people who commit them. They use case studies and forensics to understand the mind of a killer so they can zero in on criminals and stop them from committing more crimes. Recently, there's been an effort by international forensic agencies to provide certification training in criminal profiling and investigating in Mexico. But in 2002, when Juana was active, they had a trail they couldn't follow. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to female criminals. In 2003, Juana Barraza struck again. This time, the victim was Guillermina León Oropesa, an 84-year-old woman who lived alone in the Cuauhtémoc region. Juana strangled her to death with a pair of pantyhose and left her slumped on an armchair next to her bed. She didn't force her way inside Oropesa's home. The lock on the door to the house hadn't been broken, and there was no other sign of forced entry. Another piece in a pattern. Her victims were comfortable enough to let her into their homes. Police found fingerprints on a glass at the house that matched the murder of Maria de la Luz Gonzalez Anaya in 2002. Still, police couldn't immediately connect the murders, and they had no further clues to the killer's identity. They didn't even know whether they were looking for a man or a woman. The crimes do have hallmarks of murders committed by women. 
female serial killers are less likely to use their victims for sex, and they generally don't torture the people they kill. They almost always work alone. According to Marissa Harrison, an evolutionary psychologist at Penn State Harrisburg, female killers are likely to be in their 20s or 30s of average intelligence, middle class, probably Christian. That's a description broad enough to include many people. Mm -hmm. There's more. Harrison studied 38 female serial killers and found that many of them worked in caregiving roles, possibly because it gives them easy access to victims or it gives them power over potential victims. They also tend to kill in quieter ways. Juana fit that description. Staying true to her moniker, the silent lady, She killed her victims quietly through strangulation. She also robbed her victims. She wasn't just looking for older women to assault. Like many other female serial killers, she wanted money. Juana also took advantage of a new program set up in 2001 by Lopez Obrador, the mayor of Mexico City. He created a health welfare plan for people over age 70, analogous to the U.S. Social Security program. It was called Si Vale, and it gave people about $70 a month, as well as health care and vouchers to ride on transportation for free. Juana Barraza pretended to be a social worker helping the elderly sign up for the program. She used this story to convince her victims to let her into their houses. Older women were eager to have someone help them navigate the new government program. There was no reason to think Juana wasn't who she claimed to be. Juana started scoping out new elderly victims, looking for them in churches, public gardens, and city streets. She would follow them home, make sure they were alone, see that they didn't have anyone looking out for them. That's especially telling in Mexico, where several generations of families often live together. If these women lived alone and had seemingly been abandoned by their families, they'd be even more appealing targets. By late 2003, there were over 20 elderly female victims in Mexico City, all murdered with a similar MO. Pressure on the police was mounting. They had to do something. The problem was, they still had no idea where to look for the killer. Their lack of clues meant Juana was going to keep getting away with murder for years. By 2003, police were struggling to find the serial killer responsible for the deaths of at least 20 elderly women. They looked for similarities between the victims to help them build a profile. But as new details emerged in the case, they were stumped by a new piece of evidence. At least three of Juana's elderly victims owned a print of a painting called Boy in a Red Waistcoat by 18th century painter Jean-Baptiste Gruz. Bizarre coincidence or victimology? Victimology refers to the idea that killers are drawn to similarities in their victims, Generally, it's a group of victims who look the same physically or who represent something to the killer, like a power figure. But owning the same picture could mean the victims have cultural similarities and that could speak to the killer's background or interest. Gruz's boy in a red waistcoat painting, made in oil around 1775, 
features a school-aged boy with a sweet face and large eyes sitting for a portrait. He wears a red and black coat with a wide, ruffled collar. It could mean the victims shopped at the same marketplace, or the painting itself could have had meaning to Juana, and seeing it triggered a response. Unfortunately, the painting didn't give police any additional clues about Juana. By the end of 2003, there were 9 to 12 unsolved killings of elderly women. Finally, they caught a break. Witnesses spotted a suspect near a crime scene and gave police a description of a large-framed woman or man who dressed as a woman. Police released the first sketches of a gender-neutral face with short hair and began hunting for what they termed El Mata Viejitas. They used the male pronoun because they assumed the killer was a man, which means they had no idea that the killer was a woman named Juana Barraza. By now, in early 2004, there had been more than two dozen murders of elderly women in Mexico City. But police were never able to connect her to all of the murders. Making things even more confusing for the police, other killers besides Juana were targeting the elderly. In March 2004, Araceli Vasquez was convicted for killing one woman, and Mario Tablas was arrested for killing two. So police were justifiably bewildered about who was behind the deaths, which meant Juana could continue killing unabated. And she did. Juana Barraza, or now Mata Viejitas, found her next victim in mid-2004. 84-year-old Maria de los Angeles Cortez Reynoso lived alone in the Delegación Gustavo A. Madero. Juana strangled Reynoso with a pair of pantyhose and left Reynoso's bloodied, battered corpse on an armchair in the victim's house. Police noticed that Reynoso's killer left a jewelry box open and suspected that she took a souvenir from Reynoso's jewelry box. Near her corpse, police found a voter registration card and a document about the food stamp program, leading them to believe the killer used these to talk her way into the house. Juana put more effort into staging Reynoso's crime scene. She covered her body with a brown blanket and placed a bunch of flowers over her stomach. She left two candles lit on a table next to a portrait of the Virgin of Guadalupe. Serial killers often stage tableaus as they gain confidence. They spend more time at a crime scene and embellish their crimes with creative flourishes or signatures. The signature serves the psychological and emotional needs of the killer. According to criminologist Scott A. Bonn, sometimes it also reflects a fantasy about the victim. Yet even with this new case and a composite sketch, police were no closer to learning the identity of El Mataviejitas. And even worse, they still believed the killer was a man. Without the right profile, police didn't know where to look, and Juana was free to seek out new victims. Next week, we will continue our examination of Mexican wrestler turned serial killer Juana Barraza. The politics in Mexico City and the unwillingness of police to recognize that the serial killer could be a woman will complicate the search for the little old lady killer.
we'll uncover how Juana Barraza stayed true to her Lucha Libre character, the silent lady, quietly preying on elderly women until she was caught. Don't forget to subscribe to Female Criminals on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Female Criminals comes out every Wednesday. Please let us know what you think and join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. As always, we thank you for listening. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Kravitz and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson. You can examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of other female felons by following the ParCast series, Female Criminals, on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.